Alright, here we are back again, Didactic Mind, episode 87, The Mind of War. Very warm welcome as always to all of my long-time listeners over on Podbean, and no, I did not almost say SoundCloud this time, it's Podbean. Very warm welcome to all of my loyal readers from the site, and if you have not already signed up, either on the site or on the Podbean uh, portal, Please make sure you do so, that way you will never ever miss a new upload. Please make sure, as always, to like, share, comment, and subscribe. That's the most important bit. And uh, make sure you sign up for the mailing list. The links are always here uh, in the podcast episode page and on the site itself. So you will always be notified whenever a new post goes up. Posting is a bit less frequent than I might like, admittedly, but you know, I've been bloody busy these last few days, uh, last few months actually. Uh, it's been you know, a long, long haul, uh, and I finally managed to go on holiday, actually, after basically about 10 months straight of just really hard work uh, back in sort of late, septem- late September. I got back from that feeling much, much better, and uh, yeah, I mean, life is good uh, overall, I would say. Life is good. Uh, could always be better, but uh, no, no real reason to complain. Um, even though there is a lot to complain about and this is you know one of the reasons why i do this podcast is because i want to give people out there a sense of hope a sense of a sense that you're not alone and a sense that you can in fact do things and say things without fear but in order to do that you need to be careful you need to protect yourself a bit uh and make sure that you're not you know completely exposed and one of the best ways to do that is to make sure you have a VPN as I always keep saying make sure that you are protected when you're surfing online especially if you have unpopular opinions and don't want to be shall we say uncovered for having them now having a VPN is not guaranteed protection by any means so be stupid when you use a VPN your footprints can eventually be tracked unless you get a really good VPN and the best one out there, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of value for money, is Surfshark. Surfshark offers you complete protection from tracking and from, uh, from fingerprinting and allows you to change your location pretty much at will. If you don't understand how important that is, understand that when you visit any web page, your IP address can be tracked. And that means that they can target you for personalized advertising and eventually they can target you for a lot more than that. So if you get a VPN like Surfshark, then you will be protecting yourself to a very significant degree. No protection is foolproof. It's not 100%. You still have to be cautious about what you reveal and what you don't. And you have to make sure that you don't uh, give away too much information. That's why you need a browser like Brave or ideally a VPN that combines the features of a regular VPN with something like Tor, the onion router, to really mask your fingerprints. But if you're interested in surfing anonymously, make sure you get yourself a subscription to Surfshark. Link is in the description box. And right now they're having a sale, I think 80% off. It's a massive, massive discount from the regular regular price. And honestly, I mean, they really are the best value in the business. You can't get a cheaper VPN of better quality out there right now. Uh, also, if you're interested in backing up your files and you don't want them to be on the cloud, which most of the time I don't, 
then you would probably be best off getting yourself an external drive. Now, the problem that I have with magnetic drives, I love magnetic drives, don't get me wrong. I, I love uh, Western Digital and Toshiba hard disks that you can use uh, on any machine. And because I use Linux uh, on my home PC and have been using Linux for like 13 years now, uh, I understand very well what Linux likes and what it doesn't. But the major problem with hard disks is, of course, they fail over time. And, of course, they're somewhat slower than native storage on your own home PC. Now, if you're like me and you use a VPN to, shall we say, sail the high seas and download things from uh, companies and um, you know movie makers who produce films that you want to watch even though you don't like them, then it's important to be able to store that somewhere. But it's also equally important to be able to load that up quickly and watch it when you want. And with a hard disk, you can't do that, not easily. It's actually a colossal pain in the butt to try to uh, download those movies, move them onto a hard disk, and then load them up again in a video player because it, it's, just, it's constantly jerky and staticky. I found a solution recently with a SanDisk one terabyte external SSD using the new NVM little e, NVMe technology. It's bloody brilliant. It really is. For about, I think, 160 odd dollars, thereabouts, you can get an S a one terabyte SSD that performs almost like a native drive. Uh, if you're using a Thunderbolt port on your laptop or your PC, it is a native drive, basically. And it will interface with your mobile phone as long as it's using USB Type-C connectivity. It will interface with all your devices. You can store an enormous amount of data. I've actually got more data uh, storage space now on this SSD than I have on my laptop. So it's bloody phenomenal as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I'm going to basically use it to put all of my Halo games onto on my Windows partition because, you know, I run a dual boot system. And on the Windows side of things, I can never, ever find enough space uh, because, well, you know, Windows is so stupid in so many ways. It's so irritating. But if I have this SSD attached, then I can just, you know, offload my entire Steam collection onto the SSD, install everything there, load it up, and have it running, and it'll just work. I don't have to worry about it anymore. So, absolutely phenomenal device. Uh, can't recommend it enough. I've been using it for the last couple of days. I'm really thrilled with it. It's one of the best purchases I've ever made. Uh, link in the description box if you're interested in something similar. So, what is the point of today's podcast? Why did I call it the mind of war? Well, for a very good reason. The reason I've been so bloody busy this week, uh, unlike previous weeks where I'm just busy in general, there's a specific reason this week, is because I was attending a, an absolutely fascinating five-day-long intensive strategy workshop um, now, this is strat strategic thinking in a commercial context, obviously. It's uh, in, in the context of how do you tackle business problems? Well, okay, fine. But it was easily the best course on any subject that I've ever taken. And I'm not exaggerating about that. I have studied a large variety of subjects in many, many countries in many ways to try to understand a lot of different things. But when you try to understand strategy and real, really try to think in a strategic way, 
you understand very, very quickly the difference between people who are just really good at doing things and people who are really good at seeing things. The people who are really good at doing things are the vast majority of people who work in any organization. I'm not just talking business or in politics or in the military. I'm talking about any walk of life that you encounter. Most people are good at delivering on specific objectives. And that's fine. There's nothing at all wrong with that. That is virtuous and noble. It is good to work towards an end. But the people who really make a difference in this world are the ones who understand how to weave things together into uh, a broader picture, into a harmonious whole. And the lessons that I learned over this five-day course really jive very, very well with things that I have studied for years in the subject and the field of military strategy. The lessons that I picked up are lessons that I'm going to try to relate to you, and I want you to try to take these lessons and apply them to your own life, because what I'm telling you is universally applicable. To understand why strategy is so important, it's vital to understand that strategy is the discipline under which all other disciplines fit. In any field, whether you're talking about military strategy, warfare, or corporate strategy, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter how good you are as an accountant, or how good you are at marketing, or how good you are at logistics, or how good you are at operational, uh, operations management. What really matters is whether you can take that bit of specialist knowledge and make it matter at a general level. If you can do that, then you have the ability to execute a vision either for yourself or for someone else. And that is what will separate you out from the people who can only execute all the time. If you can plan ahead, if you can anticipate, anticipate movements, if you can see things before they happen, if you can understand patterns and recognize them and act upon them, then you have an edge which most people can only dream of. And the reality is that the vast majority of people will never have this skill because they don't know how to think strategically. Strategy is much an art as it is a science. Indeed, I would argue it is more of an art than a science. But there are common elements to all strategy that can be measured and can be appreciated and can be connected between different disciplines. To understand what makes strategic thinking so important, it's vital to understand one key fact about strategy, and it is this. Strategy is design, and design is strategy. What do I mean by that? If you look at any organization anywhere in the world, I don't care if it's a not-for-profit organization, I don't care if it's a military organization, I don't care if it's a business organization. Look at the way that organization is set up. Look at how it's designed. The moment you look at its design, you can figure out instantly whether that design is appropriate for the mission of that organization. 
it, I, I get that, you know, people are really sick and tired of listening to, oh, our vision is to make the world a better place, or our mission is this, and our values are this. And it's a big sort of fad in, in corporate business speak to talk about vision, mission, and values. And I get why people hate that. It is fluff. It is stupid. It is nonsense. In most cases, it absolutely is. But here's the thing. Like most bad fads in business, it started out with good intentions. The whole vision, mission, and values thing actually makes sense when you look at it holistically, when you step back and you take a look at the point of that way of thinking. The point of articulating a vision is to say, this is what we are. This is what we, this is what we want to do. Okay. The, the mission explains, uh, or rather, I should say, I take a step back. The vision is the why. Why do we exist? Why, do, for instance, what is the vision of the U.S. Army? Well, hilariously, if you ask the Army, they probably couldn't tell you. If you ask the U.S. Marines, by contrast, they would be able to tell you. We, why do the, why do the U.S. Marines exist? The U.S. Marines exist to be the first line of defense, the first rapid reaction force, the first into the fight. Okay. What is the mission of the U.S. Marines? The mission of the U.S. Marines is to be a, the, the most, the most capable fighting force in the United States, a, uh, an infantry force that can fight anywhere, anytime, for any purpose. Okay, what are the U.S. Marine Corps' values? They will tell you. That in and of itself is not enough to define or to uh, understand the strategy of the Marine Corps, but it's pretty damn good. Once you understand that vision, mission, and values aspect of things, you can understand whether the design of that organization matches those things. And what you're very quickly going to realize is that most organizations do not match their averred vision and mission. They are mismatched, and that means that whatever they try to do, whatever function they try to perform, they will fail. If you can understand things this way, you can understand very quickly why there is so much crossover between military thinking about strategy and corporate thinking about strategy. Most, you know, corporate strategy types will refer um, rather pretentiously to military textbooks like von Clausewitz, von Krieger, the on war, or Sun Tzu's The Art of War. They will reference these texts without really understanding why those texts exist, because most corporate types, most strategy consultant types have no clue about military history. They don't study it. I, on the other hand, have studied a little bit of military history. So I understand why von Clausewitz wrote what he wrote. In order to understand why military thinking is so relevant to corporate thinking and organizational design and organizational structure, you have to remember back to what happened to the Prussian army. So why did von Clausewitz write on war? Well, if you go back to the Battle of Gina Auerstedt, uh, back in, I think it was 1806, was it? Yeah. Uh, the Battle of Gina Auerstedt, or Jena Auerstedt, however you pronounce it, there were two battles that took place on the 14th of October, 
1806. The result was the complete and utter defeat of the Kingdom of Prussia by Napoleon Bonaparte. It was a, an absolutely brutal defeat. I mean, the, the Prussians got spanked so hard, they didn't even know exactly what hit them. But the interesting thing about that defeat was that several young uh, officers were in the field on that day. Among them was von Clausewitz, uh, Gerhard von Blücher, uh, uh, von Niesnau, and uh, von Scharnhorst, and of course uh, von Boyen. They were all there. Why are these names familiar? Because they were the men who became the members of the Prussian general staff over the next 50 years, and they spearheaded the reforms that completely transformed the Prussian military. Why did von Clausewitz write what he wrote in Vom Kriege? He wrote those things because he saw how bad organizational design leads to strategic disaster. Now, go forward about, you know, about 150 years to a man named John Boyd. Now, you've heard me talk about Boyd before. You've heard, you've seen me write about him before. John Boyd is the single most underappreciated genius of the 20th century. Before Boyd came along, right, fighter tactics were just random things. Nobody really understood them. It was considered like an art. You know, dogfighting was just something you knew how to do, and if you didn't know how to do it, well, you died. It was that simple. But, oh, for God's sake, all right, hang on a second. Uh, getting lots of WhatsApp messages. Um, right, so before Boyd came along, there was no real systematic way to learn the art of dogfighting. And that led to a lot of pilots dying in the sky. Boyd came along towards the end of World War II, uh, actually towards the, uh, towards the end of the Korean War, in fact. And completely transformed all of that. John Boyd was the fighter pilot without a single kill to his name, who became the man who transformed the world of fighter pilot tactics. There is no air force in the world today that takes fighter tactics seriously that does not owe a debt to, to John Boyd himself. That's how influential he was. John Boyd's work, his theories, his ideas, single-handedly transformed the entire world of uh, dogfighting. Before Boyd came along, nobody really understood how to dogfight. There was no method to the madness. Boyd came along and realized that there was a direct relationship between maneuverability in the air and the energy state of the aircraft, meaning how fast it was going and what altitude. He came up with a theory, a mathematical equation that linked these two things. He actually, the, you know, the funny thing is Boyd's background, he had a BA in, I think, industrial economics or something, and hilariously he said that it was the biggest waste of time he could imagine. He said, you know, don't ever study economics because it's a complete waste of time and money. And actually, I'm like 80% inclined to agree with him because I have a background in economics. And I can tell you, most of what they teach you is absolute crap. You know, don't, don't study it. He did a second degree. He actually did a second correspondence degree. I mean, this is the, the measure of the man's genius. 
He studied in night school for a, uh, an engineering degree. And while he was studying for that degree, he was coming up with these theories, these, these mathematical linkages between different aspects of, uh, of well, everything, really. He was, he was trying to link things out of physics with things out of mathematics, with things out of military strategy, with things out of quantum mechanics, with things out of economics. It, uh, the way his mind worked was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, he was a polymath of the highest order. This man came up with a theory that linked energy and maneuverability and did so in such a way that he was able to articulate to the Pentagon top brass, the Air Force leadership at the time, just how badly outclassed their fighters were by their Soviet counterparts. By the time the Vietnam War rolled around, as many of you will know, the US Air Force and the US Navy had to deal with incredibly bloated, incredibly expensive, incredibly stupid aircraft. The main US Navy dogfighter at the time was the F-4 Phantom, and the Air Force was also using the F-4 Phantom. And the problem with that thing was that it was just so bloody big and ungainly. I mean, it had a huge wing, yes, but it also had tremendous weight to lug around. It was an incredibly heavy platform. And the reason it was designed that way was because the Navy wanted, and the Air Force as well, wanted a joint platform that would just shoot everything down with missiles. The idea was that we would go back, we would have a whiz-bang Jetsons world where you just press a button and the enemy dies, right? You would engage at BVR, beyond visual range, shoot down the enemy, you would never have to get close enough to use guns, and the F-4 Phantom, uh, Phantom II technically, would just shoot everything down in sight. Well, that didn't happen. And the US Navy and US Air Force uh, kill ratios against North Vietnamese pilots who were trained by the Russians and the Chinese and used Russian and Chinese MiGs went down from 10 to 1, 11 to 1, which is what it was in the Korean War, although that figure is suspect. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious about that figure, right? Because the Russian sources will tell you that it was nowhere near that high, that the American pilots uh, actually lost quite a lot of engagements against Russian pilots in the field, particularly over MiG Alley um, in, in the Korean theater. But it went from 10 or 11 to 1 down to 3 to 1 or 2 to 1, and some would even argue that it was as low as 1 to 1. For every Vietnamese craft shot down, the Americans lost one of their own. That is an absolutely appalling indictment of the lack of training and the lack of understanding of not just tactics but of strategy, of air-to-air -air combat strategy. It was Boyd who came along and changed all of that. And it is thanks to John Boyd today that we have planes like the F-15 Eagle, which is the best air superiority aircraft in the world with the best combat record. We have the F-16 Fighting Falcon, which originally started life as the Viper. And we have the A-10, well, the Warthog technically, but you know, Thunderbolt II. Now, here's the funny thing. The F-15 Eagle, was developed out of the lessons learned from Vietnam using Boyd's EM theories. And the Air Force, as usual, decided to stick it with a bunch of useless shit. You know, a you know, bunch of crap that it just didn't need. Two engines, Mach 2.5, maximum speed, incredibly high operating ceiling, incredibly fast takeoff rate, honking huge radar at the front, 
lots of missiles, all the whiz-bang bells and whistles. And Boyd was like, guys, you don't need this crap. You don't need all this stuff. But the Air Force was so in love with the idea that they were like, no, just pack it full of everything. And, you know, if you look at the F-15, as good as it is today, imagine how good it could have been without all that useless junk added on. So Boyd and his acolytes, Pierre Spray, Richard Christie, and uh, a few others, engaged in literally guerrilla warfare inside of the Pentagon to come up with a stripped-down, much, much hotter, small fighter. It was called the Viper back in the day and became the F-16. The Viper was a single-engined, single-pilot plane designed to fly circles around the F-15. It would top out a maximum speed of Mach 1.6, it would carry missiles, and it was dedicated to being just an air superiority fighter. The idea was to send it up, kill the enemy planes, dogfight their way to victory, and come back down safely. And that's exactly what it did. The F-16 that we see today is a bloated, beefed-up version of the rapier-like F-16 that was originally developed. And that original F-16 was an absolutely amazing aircraft. The F-16 of today is nowhere near as good as what it used to be. And still, it is still one of the best aircraft ever made. That is the magnitude of John Boyd's contributions to the art of war. But Boyd did way more than that. He did way more than just contribute to fighter design. He also contributed immense amounts of knowledge to the field of tactics and strategy. There are three classic works by John Boyd. Uh, Destruction and Creation. Uh, actually, if we start in order, it's a Discourse on Winning and Losing, which explained why wars are won and lost, literally. Destruction and Creation, which looked at uh, what it takes to win a war, and Patterns of Conflict, which started as a one-hour briefing and ended up being a 13-hour briefing where Boyd literally just did a brain dump on generals and admirals in the U.S. Armed Forces. And most of them walked away saying either, oh my God, this guy is a genius and he's just revolutionized my way of thinking, or what most of them said, my God, what an asshole that guy was. He's just, he basically told me, I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I've been studying war for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was. But the reality is that Boyd was thinking at a level way beyond what anyone else was thinking of. And one of his core insights in all of his material and all of his thought process was design. This is the key lesson of strategy. And I'm going to keep harping on and on about this throughout the remainder of this podcast. If you are designed to operate a certain way as an organization, that determines your strategy. And if your strategy is to do a certain thing a certain way, your design will be dictated by that strategy. What do I mean by this? Let me give you a couple of concrete examples. Again, going back to the military. Why is the F-35 such a colossal flying shit heap? Why is it such a gargantuan waste of time and money? Because the F-35 is designed to do everything and therefore designed to do everything badly. That's literally the purpose of the program. The purpose of the F-35 was to provide a common platform across three, uh, well, yeah, three, basically, radically different services. 
The Air Force has one set of requirements, so they need one design. The Navy has another set of requirements, so they need another design. The Marine Corps has another set of requirements, so they need another design. The Air Force needs an all-weather interceptor. Okay, that imposes a certain set of requirements, but it also needs a ground attack aircraft that can engage and destroy tanks on the ground and support the ground troops. Now, the Air Force hates this mission, by the way. The Air Force absolutely hates the ground support mission. They consider it to be, you know, uh, a dead-end job. It's horrible for them to do. But the funny thing is the pilots who do it are really big on it. They really believe in that mission. The top brass who do it think it's awful because it's like stupid. Why would we want to do this? Um, and the U.S. Army doesn't have, uh, you know, the right to operate its own air wing like that, uh, according to a joint forces agreement, which goes back to like the end of World War II, like 1947 or something. Back when the U.S. Army Air Force was split up and, and the Air Force spun out of the Army, um, basically the, the, the ground attack uh, or ground support role was ceded to the Air Force as part of that you know, agreement to, to, to split up the, the, the two branches of service. So the Army has made do with helicopters. Um, the entire time. And helicopters are fine for what they do, but they're vulnerable. They have a lot of problems. They require enormous amounts of fuel. They can't loiter as easily. They have limits to the amount that they can uh, actually carry. And most importantly, they can't take off and land under certain particular conditions of, of wind gusts and such. The army needed uh, a very, very capable tank killer to support its troops. They didn't really have one. I mean, they had they had the Douglas A1 Sky Raider, um, which was an absolute beast of an aircraft, actually. But they needed something better. And the Air Force didn't want that mission because they were like, this is stupid. Why would we want to support the Army? Why would we want to support a bunch of ground pounders, right? But they got the A-10 eventually, and they were saddled with it, and they've been unsuccessfully, thank God, trying to kill it off for the last 20 years. They've always failed. But the F-35 was proposed as a replacement for the A-10. Now, try, if you can, to wrap your head around how stupid that idea is. It's unbelievably dumb. The A-10 is designed specifically for the mission of ground support. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece of design. It's got a huge straight wing, which gives it loads of lift at low altitude. It's literally built around a gun. The GAU-8 Avenger cannon, 30mm Gatling gun, spits out depleted uranium shells, so it, you know, it's designed to blow up tanks like tin cans all day long. I mean, if you stick a, if you, if you put a cherry bomb inside a, uh, an empty Coke can and you set off the cherry bomb, that would look better than a tank would after an A-10 Thunderbolt is done with it. That's how effective the damn thing is. The A-10 is armored like a mother. I mean, it's literally the, the, the pilot sits in the middle of a titanium-covered bathtub um, with multiple redundancies and multiple kind of uh, uh, SOS systems backing him up, right? You could shoot the shit out of the A-10 and it would still fly. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, there's this beautiful, wonderful video of like an A-10 coming into land, I think, uh, during uh, Operation Desert Storm. The whole thing is shot to pieces. I mean, it looks just awful. It looks like it's been, it's been chewed up by, it, it, it was, it was like if it was a cat toy, it's been chewed up and destroyed by a very angry cat. 
and it still comes in, it make, makes a perfect landing. The pilot gets out, he just looks at all the bullet holes along the side of his aircraft, and he just leans over and he kisses the canopy of his warthog and gets out. He's completely safe. That is what the A-10 is capable of doing. The F-35 can't do that. The F-35 has to go, cannot go down into the weeds because its wing is too small, because it's designed for a completely different mission. The original airframe of the F-35 was designed to be an air superiority fighter. So it cannot do this. The, the Navy version of the F-35 has to have reinforced landing gear so it can land on a hard carrier deck. The Marine Corps version needs a big central fan. It, I mean, it basically needs vertical takeoff capability. And I mean, this is, I've written about this before, and I'm not going to go too much into the details again, but of all the dumb ideas in the history of air-to-air -air combat or air-to-ground combat, vertical takeoff and landing has to be one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. I mean, the, the, the sheer stupidity of the idea is shocking to me. But the reason why it's so important and the reason why the Marines keep insisting on it is not because it's a good idea, it's, a, it's monumentally dumb. It's because they don't have a choice. It's because in order to perform their function of being the primary assault arm of the US military, they need air support. And they need air support that can take off and land on the little carriers, the little dinky amphibious assault ships that they have. Helicopters won't cut, uh, won't cut the mustard. So they need something uh, airborne. For them, that was the AV-8 Harrier, uh, ad adopted and adopted from British Aerospace, and jointly produced, I think, with McDonnell Douglas. Well, that's gone the way of the Dodo, because the Brits have gone all in for other aircraft on their aircraft carriers. Uh, primarily the F-35, actually. So the Marines need something that will do the job. But, of course, in order to satisfy the requirements of vertical takeoff and landing, you need a big, fat central body, and you cannot have big wings. Because if you have big wings, then you know the, the, um, the ability to take off vertically is eliminated instantly. Because the big wing produces so much air resistance that no matter how much uh, upthrust you get from the engine, it's not going to overcome that issue. You can't take off, especially if you have weapons loaded. You might as well have a helicopter. So all of these things resulted in a series of massive compromises in the design, which meant and means that the F-35 can't do one single thing well. It does everything really, really badly. And on top of that, it is horribly expensive to maintain. It is biblically unreliable. It is incredibly useless in combat, and it is not capable of fulfilling any of its primary mission parameters, except for one, which is to spend boatloads of money. That aircraft has already cost upwards of $1.8 trillion. Trillion. $1.8 trillion. It's the, the, the total cost of the aircraft is approaching the entire GDP of Russia. It's already exceeded the entire GDP of Australia. That's how bad this aircraft is at doing what it's supposed to do. You basically took the entire Australian economy, nuked it, and in the process got a plane that can't climb, can't turn, can't run. That is appalling. Until you remember that the purpose of the program was to spend money.
It was designed to spend money. That's the point of the F-35. That's the only reason why this program exists. If you understand that, then you understand where and how and why design is so important. Look at the Bradley fighting vehicle. I'm reading a book right now by Colonel James Burton called The Pentagon Wars. And if you haven't read it, it's a very good book. There's also a movie starring uh, Carrie Elwes and um, of you know uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights and The Princess Bride fame. But he's actually very good in this movie. Genuinely, he's very good. And uh, Kelsey Grammer. And it talks about the development of the Bradley Fighting Vehicle uh, troop carrier. Now, the Bradley Fighting Vehicle started out as a good idea. It started out as a troop carrier designed to ferry troops in and out of battle safely. It then became compromised because multiple generals wanted it to do multiple things. They said, well, wouldn't it be great if it could have uh, a big-ass gun on it so it can engage tanks? But it's like, but but why would you do that? It's a troop carrier designed to bring troops into battle, not to fight with tanks. And then another general came along and said, well, wouldn't it be great if it, if it could carry missiles too? Well, but why would you want that? Why would you want to put missiles on a troop carrier? So what is this thing supposed to be? Eventually, it became like so many U.S. military weapons, it became a kludge, became uh, a this this ugly mishmash of different things with no particular clear mission goal in sight. Design and strategy are inseparable. The design of this vehicle was bad. Therefore, strategically, it cannot be used for anything other than failed missions. And that is exactly what happened when it was deployed. The Bradley turned out to have multiple vulnerabilities. It turned out to be something of a death trap for the troops. Despite Colonel Burton's best efforts to get the army to perform realistic safety tests on it, they kept messing it up. They kept trying to politicize it. They kept trying to dodge and duck responsibility for what the Bradley was supposed to do. And the result was a very badly designed, very dangerous contraption that killed a lot of the troops who fought using it. Apparently it's been improved quite a bit since then, but it's still very vulnerable. What are the lessons we can take away from all of this? How do you apply this lesson about strategy into your own life? Well, the first thing to do is to understand, again, that strategy and design cannot be separated. Take a look at your company. Take a look at whatever your employer is doing. Is the design of that company in line with its stated strategic aim? If you look at Google, or technically if you look at Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, what is Google's strategy? It is to control, or really to gather all the information and thereby control it. So they are their, their corporate design reflects that fact. The corporate design of Google reflects this desire to collect as much information as possible and store it and analyze it and come up with uh, ways to monetize it. And primarily, that is based around search, right? So Google's entire reason for existence is search. Something like, the last time I checked, and it was a long time ago, so this figure is probably not accurate, but something like 70% of Alphabet's revenue comes from Google search. 
The rest of Alphabet's revenue comes from other kind of ventures that Google does, such as Google Pay and a few other bits and pieces here and there, which leverage Google's network effect. And of course, uh, from Google Play Store and uh, Android and a few other things. But primarily, Google is all about search. That's their design. That's their strategic approach to a particular problem. What does that mean? By definition, it means that Google cannot, therefore, do something like a social media network. Not very well. Does anybody remember Google Plus? I mean, that was a disaster. That was Google's attempt to reorient strategically to tackle Facebook. But Facebook is designed very differently from the way Google is designed. It has to be. Facebook's approach is not to help you search for things. Facebook's approach is to connect you in a network effect with other people. So you leverage a platform ecosystem whereby various people are connected with each other and you leverage that to sell people things and advertise things and uh, connect things together. That approach is very different from what Google does. When you have uh, two opponents designed very differently, competing over the same territory, the opponent whose design best reflects the strategic territory in which it's operating is the one that will win, by definition. Okay. So the way to apply this is to look at other organizations and other designs. Look at Apple. Apple's design is purely functional. What I mean by that is, if you look at the way that Apple is structured, it is structured into functions. They, they don't, they don't structure things into like divisions the way that um, other companies do. If you look at Procter and Gamble, they structure everything into divisions. If you look at Johnson & Johnson, they structure everything into companies that then structure themselves into divisions that then go functional. What do I mean by this? Okay, this might take a little bit of explaining, but if you look at a company like, well, let's take Johnson Johnson, because I know it well. Look at J&J. J&J is an operating umbrella of, uh, I don't know, 60, maybe 70 some different companies, all operating under a corporate center, all right? Each company has its own brands and its own functions underneath those brands or divisions underneath those brands I should say. Look at uh, for instance Johnson Johnson Consumer. Johnson Johnson Consumer Division it has dozens if not hundreds of brands under it. Johnson Johnson Clean and Clear under the Consumer Division. Okay Clean and Clear therefore has a marketing division and a finance division and an accounting division or an, uh, an HR division and an operations division and the supply chain division so on and so forth and this is true of every company in which clean and clear operates which is basically most of the most of the companies or most of the countries where J&J operates so that structure allows them to uh, react very quickly to what the market has you know if you look at the way that clean and clear markets itself in one geography versus how it does it in another geography, it's quite different. The way that clean and clear competes in Singapore is different from the way that clean and clear competes in the USA. Different target segments, different markets, but very similar products, very similar packaging, right? 
they manage that by being reactive on the ground because they have to be. They're in the fast-moving consumer goods business. So they have to have this, this, this very clear divisional structure on the ground. Apple's structure is completely different. Apple's structure is, you know, one vertical for, and one vertical for, um, iPad or one vertical for iPad and iPhone, one vertical for MacBook, one vertical for, uh, computing one vertical for other technologies and within those verticals you know you have people who carry out different functions um you have the uh the the kind of the the marketing and sales and and engineering and so so forth for one particular product line that difference in structure makes apple uniquely capable of locking people into its ecosystem that's exactly how apple works that's how they function they don't do what Google did with Android, which is basically to open up Android and let any device use Android. Apple's entire philosophy is to lock you into their walled garden. So if you, you know, they, they control everything from end to end. They control the entire way that their, their operating system is designed. Nobody's allowed to do anything else with it. They control the hardware. They control the components. They control the design, the branding, the marketing, the sales, the everything. They control all of it from end to end because they're designed that way. They cannot, by definition, act any other way. And the weakness of this design approach or the weakness of this structure is that Apple misses a bunch of stuff that other people pick up on very quickly. If you take a look at Apple TV, they're very late to the market. It's a streaming service that cannot compete yet with Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus. Uh, what what else is there? I mean, all that. Like, it's Apple TV is you know way down the the, the lead table. I mean, it's down with uh, what's it called, popcorn or something else. Um, in terms of subscriber base, it can't compete because Apple's design makes it incapable of seeing new trends quickly that are outside of its core. If you look at Apple's notebooks, Apple's notebooks are amazing. I mean, I have, my, I have a lot of issues with them, actually. I think that they've sacrificed way too much functionality in favor of design, you know, in, in favor of aesthetics. But if you look at their desktop computing division, what's happening there? The answer is Apple has very little presence in desktops. They have amazing presence in notebooks, but very little presence in desktops. They're not reacting fast to the changes in the desktop market. Why is that? Their primary desktop offering is a computer that is like, it's ridiculously powerful. If you actually look at the specs of the top end, uh, Apple desktop, uh, product, it's, you know, the last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, was this, it was like this Taurus, you know, donut shaped thing, which looked completely radical for a computer. But it was like you looked at the specs and it was like mind-blowingly powerful. It was also mind-blowingly expensive. It was like thirteen thousand um, dollars for that amount of money. You could basically design your own server rack and you know with interfaces and everything. Uh, you wouldn't need to buy an Apple product. You could just do it yourself. But that's the way that Apple is set up. They can't react fast enough to rapid changes in some of these other markets. 
they're designed in such a way that they can only do one thing well, but they do it incredibly well. Apply this same principle to your life. Look at what you're good at. Look at what your strengths are. And look at what your weaknesses are. Look at where there are opportunities for you to apply those strengths and threats that will potentially uh, damage you by exploiting your weaknesses. I realize this sounds a lot like bizblab, and yes, you know, I hate that too, believe me. But there is, when used in a legitimate way, there are good reasons to use these concepts. Now, think of how you are designed. Think of how you have gone through your life. What are your what are your advantages that you have which are unique to you? Where are the things what are the things that you do better than anybody else in your in your vicinity? Look at the way you set up your life. Does that setup mirror your personal design? If not, you're going to fail. If it does, you're going to succeed. If you want to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but you've designed your life in such a way that you are, you know, a slave to creature comforts, you are in debt up to your ears, you are barely getting by, you spend more time on leisure than you do on work you're very unlikely to get the CEO of anything because the CEO of a company, let alone a Fortune 500 company, has to have certain traits that make him capable of doing what he's supposed to do. Is your main goal in life to become, if you're a woman, to become a wife or mother? Look at your life. Did you go to university and get a four-year degree? Okay. Are you working? Okay. Are you living by yourself? Okay. Do you rely on yourself for everything, you know, for your clothes, your jewelry, for everything that you do? Okay. Sorry to tell you this, you're probably not going to get married and have kids. That's just the truth. Your design is contrary to your vision. It's not going to happen. Why is it not going to happen? Because if you went to a four-year college, you've already increased your expectations of what your husband or your future man should do. You've already, uh, because of hypergamy, locked yourself out of the market for a lot of potential mates who will not have your level of education. Women always want to aim above themselves. The man that they're with should always be more educated, more successful, earn more money, and be more capable than her. I mean, that's just the way women are wired. By definition, that's what they're gonna look for. So if you've done that, you've already locked out a very, very large number of potential mates. The small, of the small number that is left, if you are earning a lot of money working a city job in finance or in banking or marketing, fashion, retail, whatever, 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 right? You know, if you're in any of those jobs, you're not going to be interested in a guy who earns less than you and who works in a less prestigious um, field than you. That's just the way women are designed. 
If your goal, therefore, is to achieve this level of satisfaction by having a, a husband and a family, well, your design is contrary to your purpose and you will fail, most likely. How do you fix it? Learn how to cook. Give up your expectations of a great and successful career because you're probably not going to have one. Understand that their life is all about trade-offs and choices. Understand that you're not going to be able to do everything you want to do. That's just the truth, whether you like it or not. Understand that life is going to feed you um, things that you don't want. It's going to give you roadblocks and obstacles that you're not going to be happy about. But that's just the way it is. And accept that and move on. If you really want a husband, you know, if you're a woman, if you're a young woman out there, I mean, it's probably almost none of them listen to me, I'm sure, but if any of them do, learn how to cook, dress well, be kind, be considerate, be just pleasant to be around. No one gives a crap about your salary or your education. We just don't care. As men, we just don't care. You know, I've, I've dated women who are on paper much more qualified than me. I mean, one of them has uh, multiple master's degrees, two master's degrees. I don't. I have one. But I don't care about that. You know, I'm not interested in a woman's qualifications. I'm interested in how I feel around her. So, you know, align your goals with your design and vice versa. If you're a man who wants to get girls, who wants to get right with God, who wants to live a decent and good life, but you're constantly distracting yourself with uh, pleasures of the flesh, if you're constantly surfing the net, if you're just wasting your time in idleness and dissipation, playing computer games all the time, watching porn, uh, not going out, not meeting women, not even working very hard, well, I'm sorry, but you're not going to get what you want out of life. It's not going to happen. Your stated aim is completely contrary to your design. You don't have the mind of war. To wrap up here in the, in the last five minutes, what do I mean by the mind of war? What I mean is this dedication to strategy as an overriding end in and of itself. You think like a strategist all the time. You look at the world and you try to recognize patterns out of it. How do you do this? Again, by keeping in mind that the three levels of war apply everywhere. There are three levels to all of it. If you look at Boyd's three levels of war, physical, mental, and moral, if you look at the way that the United States military has historically fought, it has almost never lost the physical level. The United States military is overwhelmingly good at the physical level, but it's almost overwhelmingly bad at the moral level. And the moral level bleeds down into the mental level because American troops don't understand what they're fighting for, and they don't agree with the cause of the fight. Look at the Vietnam War. The United States won almost every major engagement in the Vietnam War. The Tet Offensive was actually a massive failure for the Viet Cong. The Tet Offensive broke the Viet Cong as a fighting force. That's the truth. 
Their casualties were so severe that as a fighting force they could no longer effectively feel themselves. The U.S. Army destroyed them in the field. But as a moral victory, it was tremendous. The U.S. Army and the military in general lost the support of the population back home, who believed that they'd been lied to and misled by their leaders. Support for the war cratered, and the U.S. never recovered after that. Even though the U.S. military won physically, it lost morally, and its soldiers lost mentally. They lost hope. They lost faith. They lost the belief in the fight. It's the same with strategy. The first, the lowest level of strategy is actually tactics. The next level up is logistics. The third and top level is strategy. There's a, a great quote from Sun Tzu which goes something like, um, strategy without tactics is the hard road to victory. Tactics without strategy is but a delayed defeat. Something like that. You can go look it up. It's absolutely correct. I mean, Sun Tzu gets a lot of credit for a lot of very cheesy aphorisms. He was a confirmed epigra epigrammatist, but what he said, assuming that was him who said it, about strategy and tactics is absolutely true. If your tactics are solid, but you don't have a strategy for executing those tactics, it doesn't matter how good your tactics are, you're never going to win. If your operations, your logistics don't match your overall strategy, you're never going to win. But if your strategy is sound, if your design is sound, if it ties into your strategy perfectly, if you then design tactics around your strategy to help you win in whatever field you're pushing towards, then you will win. You will push through the obstacles. You will get to where you need to go. So keep that in mind because that is the mind of war. That is how you win. By making sure that every aspect of your life, every aspect of your philosophy, every aspect of your belief system lines up with an overall strategic goal. And that means creating a vision, a mission, and values for yourself that you will not deviate from, no matter what. Once you craft that, and you adapt to the situations on the ground to adapt your strategy, or rather to adapt your tactics, because your strategy is sound. Once you've tested your strategy and you found that, yes, this works, this makes sense, you've looked at the assumptions, you've tested them, you've checked them, you've made sure that everything makes sense at a deep level, and you understand what it is you're trying to do, and you have a clear vision of how to get there, then if you adapt your tactics as the situation on the ground changes, you will be unbeatable. And that's the simple truth. So we're about out of time. I'm sure uh, people are sick and tired of me yelling at them through their headphones. But uh, I hope you found this enlightening. I hope you, this, was, this was useful to people. And uh, I hope that you gain something out of it because there's a lot to, to go through. And I could be standing here talking about strategy and tactics for hours because this is stuff that interests me personally. Um, but let me know what you think in the comments below. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe, and make sure you never miss a new upload from the Didactic Mind podcast or from Didactic Mind itself. And uh, I hope to see you on the next one, whenever that is. Um, been a bit difficult to get 
into a regular schedule here, but uh, I will try to keep this going. Uh, many thanks again, and this has been Didactic Mind, episode 87, The Mind of War, and I am Didact, signing off.